Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Private First Class Desmond Doss. Doss was a medic serving with Bravo Company, part of the 1st Battalion, 307th Infantry, rolled up under the 77th Infantry Division. The time period we're going to talk about is primarily in May of 1945, but we're going to have to go back a little further than that to try to get a little more of the Desmond Doss story into this episode. Now, I'm going to try to walk a line here because this story, the story of Desmond Doss, has been popularized in the recent movie called Hacksaw Ridge. And that makes up a major portion of his Medal of Honor citation that we're going to dive into today. But I'm going to see what I can do to provide a little information for those of you who have seen the movie and and are familiar with the name. Maybe provide a little more background uh, to the story that you know or a little more context. And for those of you who haven't seen the movie, check it out. It's worth the watch. Um, And we'll we'll try to walk through it in a way that that paints the full picture of Doss and his actions and how incredible the story is. It really is. Now, you'll hear the term, you'll hear the ranks, private first class and corporal thrown out a couple times here. The action, during the actions we're talking about, Doss is a private first class. He is promoted to corporal before he exits the service. So you'll hear both of those thrown around. Same person, same window of time. But Doss, one of the things that makes his story so unique is he is a conscientious objector. And I'm going to try to not say that very many more times during this episode because I kind of trip over a conscientious objector. Anyways, he has the ability to not go and fight or not go and participate, I should say, in the Second World War. He has a job in the States that precludes him from service. We had any number of these. We couldn't have everybody going to fight. We had to have some people building tanks and and, and engineering new aircraft and any number of, of war-winning critical tasks. Doss is in one of those positions in a shipyard in Virginia. So he has the opportunity to not go off to war. He shuns that aside, pushes that aside. And despite being a conscientious objector and, and averse to the idea of taking another man's life, I think is the way to sum it up. So he doesn't see a scenario, any scenario within his religious belief system. I want to say, um, seventh day Adventist is the, the religious ideology that he, I hope I'm saying that right. Um, that's where he practices or what he practices. So the idea is that there's no possible scenario where taking another man's life is justified. So that's a challenge in warfare, but there are jobs where you aren't going to be called upon to directly, um, engage enemy forces. One of those is a medic. Now, medics, Medics are considered non-combatants still to today. The Geneva Convention is in the the mid 1800s. There came out some kind of international rules that we abide by or try to abide by um, across the board that they, and one of those was that medics on the battlefield, people specifically engaged in the treatment of wounded soldiers and and non-combatants are non-combatants themselves as in they shouldn't be targeted or engaged. Now it's a tough ask. Right. If you think of, of, of a plane carrying paratroopers um, over Normandy um, before the drops on D-Day, they had medics with them. Now, that plane is still going to be targeted, even though there's a medic on board. So it's not as though just because you're a medic, you're not 
in danger, even if a country is abiding by the rules and not directly engaging medical personnel, people don't get wounded in, in the safety of, you know, somewhere away from the battlefield. They're wounded usually within direct sight of the enemy. And it's, uh, so medics are right there in the thick of it, even though they shouldn't be technically directly engaged. It's, it's often asking a lot in the heat of battle for enemy forces to somehow not shoot or drop artillery in this one area because there's a medic there. So they're certainly at a, at a massive risk of uh, being killed or wounded, but they're not supposed to take part in offensive action. If they take part in offensive action, they lose that non-combatant status. That doesn't mean they can't carry a weapon. And most medics do. Most medics carry at least a sidearm and sometimes a rifle. And the idea is if they absolutely have to, they can defend themselves and their patients. They would at that point be giving up their non-combatant status, but now we're talking about survivability on the battlefield. Um, so they are permitted to carry weapons. They are permitted to use weapons. There's just an understanding that you kind of lose that, that designation, but not DOS. DOS won't carry a weapon at all because in his mind, again, there's no scenario where taking another man's life is justified. So he catches a lot of flack for this. He catches a lot of flack during training and when he's out with his units. And there's um, there's a lot of like good-natured ribbing in the military and, and kind of some maybe dark humor or jokes and, and, and pranks you play on each other that's, at the end of the day, kind of team building, maybe just something you wouldn't say to somebody else. But this went above and beyond. And for a few years, DOS was uh, not the popular kid, maybe is the way to say it. People really... They tried to get rid of him. The units tried to get rid of him and said, we have no, we have no place for a man that won't carry a weapon. Um, he's a risk. He's a liability. And I think there was probably some emotion that went into that as well. Um, people looking at that as less than, maybe not manly enough. Um, you know, of course, if, if, if a medic is treating a wounded soldier, they don't, they don't need a weapon in that exact moment. And you, don't, you maybe don't want them using the weapon to engage the enemy. You want them focusing on you know, treating that wound. But nonetheless, it doesn't take away from the fact that DOS was, I mean, you could even use the term bullying for, for years within his unit. Remember, these are the people that he is going to be tasked with treating once they get into combat. And they do get into combat before too long. DOS will be not only see combat, but be awarded for valor during fighting in the Philippines and Guam in 1944. He'll earn, I believe, two bronze stars with valor devices. So by the time he and his unit land on Okinawa in, in May of 1945, He's already been through combat. He's already been on the battlefield. He is not new to the pressures and the dangers of treating wounded in combat. But Okinawa is going to be different. Okinawa is one of the deadliest, maybe bloodiest, I think is the better way to describe it due to the number of casualties. One of the bloodiest battles of the Second World War, especially for one of the bloodiest battles of the, world, the Second World War, specifically for the United States. We have to, um, and at some point maybe we'll go down some rabbit holes here, but some of the battles in the Eastern Front between Germany and the Soviet Union are overwhelming in scale compared to just about any fight the United States sees. So Okinawa for the United States and for Japan is a pretty nasty, pretty deadly battle that all in would see between fourteen and 20,000 Americans killed and upwards of 100,000 Japanese and Okinawan conscripts, not civilians, but conscripts in the military, 100,000. 
Japanese killed. And of course, the another major item during the Battle of Okinawa is the civilian casualties. This was an island. There were many, many islands throughout the Pacific campaign that were either uninhabited for the most part, except by Japanese soldiers and military. Iwo Jima is a good example where I'm not sure there was any civilian population on that island, especially by the time American forces landed. The other side of that is going to be Okinawa, where there's going to be about 300,000 civilians on this island. It's not very big. And at the end of the fighting, you're going to see upwards of 150,000 civilians killed during this battle. So it's a horrible, horrible battle for all sides. For everybody involved in Okinawa, it's, it's awful. The conditions on the battlefield are horrific. They're going to, by the time some rains come in in the spring, late summer and spring, um, or I'm sorry, late spring and early summer, you're going to start seeing conditions that you would that, that look like World War One. You're going to have vehicles can't move through the mud. The soldiers are slipping in the mud. When somebody gets wounded, they may be stranded at a place where nobody can get to them, and they die. And then the rains kind of move around the landscape a little bit. And next thing you know, the casualties and the dead that weren't recovered from the battlefield are now under an inch or two inches of dirt. And the next time it rains, those rotting bodies start to, to show up. This is, this is Okinawa. This is the Battle of Okinawa. And it went on for – the land battle went on for 81 days. And it is, it is brutal. Now, American forces will land – American, not um, – American this time refers to Marines and Army. So in a handful of battles in the Pacific, you're going to see Army and Marine forces taking on the fight at the same time. And in early May, I believe May 1st, or let's see, April 1st, I think is the the date of the actual landings. Um, yeah, April 1st, Marines and Army forces are going to land on the western side of Okinawa and kind of split the island. So generally speaking, the Marines are going to head north. And the army is going to head south as they move to clear out enemy forces from the island. Okinawa is important because it's pretty close to the Japanese mainland. And at this point in the war, we're talking March through July of 1945. This is the end of the war. Nobody knows it while they're fighting. But remember, it's August of 1945 when we dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's just a few months away. Now, there's no countdown timer that the Marines and soldiers get to see before they land. So they don't know that the end is close. But in fact, most of these soldiers and Marines on Okinawa, this will be the last major combat they see of the war. These are going to be the last firefights, their last um, time dropping mortars, their last time being in artillery barrage, their last time landing, assaulting enemy beaches. But because of the time in the war, we are getting closer and closer to the Japanese mainland. This is going to be a major jumping off point for that invasion. Everybody expects that Operation Downfall, as it's called, the invasion of the Japanese mainland, is coming. So here we are saying, these guys don't know that the end of the war is nearby. It's kind of the opposite. They know that if they take Okinawa, once they take Okinawa, the next big fight is going to be for Japan. That is not something that anybody was looking forward to. Everybody knew what that was going to entail. And the casualties that would mount from that battle. So there's another way to think of it. The guys actually doing the fighting on Okinawa to include Desmond Doss, and we're diving into his actions here. What they had to look forward to after success on Okinawa was probably an even worse battle for the Japanese mainland. 
Now, as the army forces are moving south through Okinawa, they run into something referred to as the Shuri Line, S-H-U-R-I. And it's going to be an east-west running line of defensive positions that the Japanese put in place to protect um, Shuri Castle. It's a old, old series of buildings. There's a, one main building, but, but kind of a fortification area that's used for their uh, military headquarters on the island. And there's going to be a pretty, they have time. This is close enough to Japan. They've built a pretty substantial defense network as American forces move across the island. So the Americans through um, April into May are making progress, but they're running into pretty serious defenses all across the island. And it clicks in early May that they haven't actually hit maybe the worst part. Like we're still just battling through outposts. Now, there's going to be an area that Americans run into, the Army runs into, the 96th um, Infantry Division specifically runs into something referred to as the Medea Escarpment is the actual name of this piece of terrain that sits about 400 feet tall above, sits 400 feet above the rest of the island, a couple steep cliffs on certain on, on a handful of sides with Japanese forces dug in all on top. Now, because they're all on top, they can fire as at American forces as they try to move around it, which is a problem because you're getting shot at from above. So you have to, the Americans have to take this escarpment, this terrain feature. But the only area that they can really get to is a cliff face, which means that, you know, similar to what we saw at Point du Hawk on June 6, 1944, with the Army Rangers scaling the cliffs, that there's not another way to do this. We have to get up these cliffs. But, but the problem is as soon as you get over that cliff face, you're face to face with enemy fighters. <laughs> the benefit is it's so steep that they actually can't shoot down to the Americans marshalling below, getting ready for these attacks up the cliff. But it's too steep on every side for tanks or armored vehicles. And a couple of the areas are so well defended that it makes more sense to go up this cliff face. Now, the cliff face, I've seen a lot of numbers around this cliff face. The one that looks most accurate to me is about 40 feet tall. 40 feet because there's a lot of records of this unit using 50-foot ladders to get up the cliff face. Now, when you look at Desmond Doss's Medal of Honor citation, it's going to refer to a 400-foot cliff. When you um, read other historical accounts, it might refer to anywhere from 200 to 500-foot cliff. Now, I think what that's referring to is the overall elevation of this escarpment. The actual cliff that the Americans are going to scale from my best research looks to be about 40 feet. That's nothing to scoff at, by the way. Now, the movie you're going to see, it's, it's, there's some Hollywood done there, so it looks more like two, three, four hundred feet. It's huge. But climbing 40 feet with all that combat gear is crazy. That by itself is an incredible feat. So even if it's on the low side, there, there's a picture of Doss standing at the top of, of this, um, this escarpment, this ridge, and it looks closer to 40 feet. But nonetheless, use whichever number you want to use. That's what the Americans have to climb up to get over the top to fight the enemy. Now, the problem with you know hitting this area with mortars, artillery, naval gunfire, bombs, is the Japanese have dug in in an area known as the reverse slope. So... What that means is every hill has a slope 
has, has the, the top of the hill and then you have the reverse slope, which means just a little bit behind it. So imagine you're going outside and you're trying to, you know, spray a hose at your buddy that's on a, on a small hill in your yard. When he's on top of the hill, he might have that elevation, but you can hit him from just about any direction. You can hit him with that hose. If he walks towards you on the front side of the hill, cool. You can still hit him with the hose from any direction. But if he goes to the back side of that hill, you all of a sudden have to start getting lucky with arching the, the water up over the hill and hoping that some of them will hit him. And, and what if he's under a little bit of cover there in the back? Like, Come on. How lucky do you have to get to actually hit the enemy? And what the Japanese were doing on this area, Medea Escarpment, as, it, as, as it's called, is they were digging in on the reverse slope. So Americans would hammer the, the ridgetop with artillery, mortars, airstrikes, napalm would be dropped, naval gunfire. And then once that wrapped up and the Americans started climbing up the cliff, the Japanese would come out of their reverse slope right to the top of the hill and wait for the Americans to peer over the top of the cliff. And they'd open up with a deadly barrage causing heavy, heavy casualties. After a few attempts at taking this area, the 96th Infantry Division is relieved by the 77th Infantry Division. At this point, the number of casualties and the deadly battle on the top of this hill, on the top of this little ridge, earns it the nickname of Hacksaw Ridge. So Medea Escarpment on Okinawa, known as Hacksaw Ridge, the name of the movie that stars Desmond Doss. Doss is in the 77th Infantry division and is going to be in the first party that goes towards the top with his company, Bravo company to take this Japanese held hill. Now, once they get to the top, their unit as well starts suffering major, major casualties. And before long, the company says, we have to retreat. We have to get back down the hill and they all start moving, but there's a problem. There's a lot of wounded and killed up there on the top of this cliff that can't move back. So as the company retreats, Doss stays behind. And for the next few hours, Doss, still under heavy machine gun, mortar, artillery, grenades being lobbed in every direction, one of the only Americans at the top of the hill, well, there's a handful of Americans on the top of the hill. Um, nobody is is up there to fight. They're all wounded. Doss finds wounded soldiers, treats them, drags them to the edge of the cliff, and lowers them down for treatment. One after the other, after the other, after the other. Doing this one time would have been an incredible act. Doing it five or ten times would have been so far above and beyond the call of duty that he likely would have been awarded the Medal of Honor for that. Instead, Doss never stops. And at the end of the day, there are, again, we're looking at a variation of numbers here. Doss says he thinks he saved about 50. The Army says no. It was closer to 100. And if you look back at the records, what they've generally done is said, we'll, we'll, we'll split it down the middle. And now the, the rough number associated with Desmond Doss on Hacksaw Ridge is saving 75 American lives by lowering them down that cliff face where they can get treatment and fight another day. Now, again, that by itself, now we've got 75 Americans saved after his Bronze Star on Leyte and in, uh, in Guam. Heck of a career, you know, above and beyond at this point. But it doesn't stop there. Remember, the battle for Hacksaw Ridge takes another three or four days. They didn't, they, they were, Americans were retreating down the cliff. They didn't win that day. So Doss goes back up into this hellish gunfire over the next few days and time and time again exposes himself to enemy fire without regard for his own life to save his brothers. Time and time again. 
It would be three weeks later, two, I guess it'd be probably two and a half weeks later on May 21st, where again, there's a major, just I'm going to say major battle. These battles on Okinawa were just not stopped. So there's another engagement going on with his unit and he is ahead of enemy lines. Oh, excuse me. He's ahead of friendly lines. He's in this area between friendly and enemy lines. That's incredibly risky because you run the risk of being shot by everybody. Now, there's this little gap where maybe the Americans push and try to take an area and they get pushed back. So they, you know, they went hundred yards forward and had to fall back 50. And now you've got this 50 yard gap, that kind of thing. But in that gap, you're going to have a lot of wounded soldiers and wounded soldiers means that DOS is going to be out there trying to save their lives. So he's in this incredibly dangerous area where he's at risk of being shot at by, well, he's at risk of being hit and killed by Japanese fire. But he also runs the risk of his guys mistaking him for the lead element of a Japanese attack. Um, remember, they're on edge. He's out there treating wounded when he himself is wounded by a, a grenade blast, and it, it severely damages his legs. And he's, he's not going to be able to um, walk out of there. But Doss, rather than risking – remember, we're talking about how dangerous this area is that he's operating in. If he calls for a medic – Somebody else has to take that risk to come out to him. If he calls for a stretcher team because he can't walk, that stretcher team is going to be a danger coming out to get him. So he waits. He bandages his wounds himself, which that always that's something that always sounds real simple. But when your legs have searing hot um, grenade fragments all throughout them and you can't walk, it's a pretty serious chore to stay conscious and, uh, and treat yourself um, for those wounds. Nonetheless, treats himself and waits for five hours until the battle gets to a point where a stretcher team can reach him. They load him on the stretcher and start moving him back to the rear. Great. But as they're moving to the rear, they get hit by an enemy counterattack. And in this process, Doss sees a, another soldier on the ground more wounded than he is, or in Doss's estimation, in worse shape than he is. So Doss crawls off the stretcher. He's on his way to safety. Think of how how much pain he's in with those grenade fragments peppering his legs. But he crawls out of the stretcher, says, make room for this guy. They move the other casualty into the stretcher, and Doss now has to figure out how he's going to get back to American lines. Remember, he can't walk. That grenade really tore up his legs. Before long, he's hit by an enemy sniper bullet that breaks his arm. He finds a rifle butt, a rifle stock, uh, the wooden stock of a rifle, and uses it to splint his arm to keep it straight. And then, here we go, with grenade fragments peppering his legs to the point where he can't walk, and his arm broken from a sniper bullet. Remember, that the arm is broken. That means a bullet went through the bone, essentially. And with the tourniquet and a splint keeping that arm straight... Doss then crawled 300 yards to the nearest aid station for treatment. Again, not relying, not wanting anybody else to be put at risk to come out and get him. After that, Doss is evacuated. He has, his war is, is over. Remember, we're talking about the end of May, 1945. There's really nothing left, you know, with a broken arm, he's not going to be back in the fight soon. And by early August, 1945, the war is over. Now, Dawson would return home, be awarded the Medal of Honor, and would 
um, go on to live until the age of 87 when he would have passed away in 2006. But it's an incredible, incredible, incredible legacy. Just the, the story of saving so many men. And I want to bring it back full circle here, saving so many men that ridiculed him and bullied him and made him feel like less of a man because he wouldn't carry a weapon. And when the time came and he had the opportunity, something to, to keep in mind here is he had the opportunity to walk back down that cliff with the rest of his men. That's where everybody went. He had the opportunity to not crawl out ahead of friendly lines to treat the wounded. That's not a stand. These things we're talking about are not standard medic tasks. That's why he's awarded the Medal of Honor. He's not the, the normal call of duty is not to stay behind in an enemy swept area to treat the wounded for hours on end by yourself. That's, that's above and beyond. Doss goes above and beyond for the people that did not treat him well. And I think that's probably saying it lightly, but nonetheless, now today, looking back, he is a hero to many. He's uh, he's an inspiration and just a heck of a story with a conscientious objector being awarded the medal of honor for saving so many lives during the battle of Okinawa in the second world war, 1945. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.